Hello and welcome to Unknown Worlds of the Merrill Collection. I am your host, Oliver Brackenbury. The Merrill Collection of Science Fiction, Speculation, and Fantasy is the Western Hemisphere's largest publicly accessible archive of genre materials. Each week, we explore a different world of genre fiction in conversation with a special guest. Today, I'll be discussing Canadian sci-fi, fantasy, and speculative literature with Cory Doctorow. Cory is a science fiction author, activist, and journalist. He's written Radicalized and Walk Away, Science Fiction for Adults, a YA graphic novel called In Real Life, the nonfiction business book Information Doesn't Want to be Free, and young adult novels like Homeland, Pirate Cinema, and Little Brother. His next book is Posey the Monster Slayer, a picture book for young readers. He works for the Electronic Frontier Foundation, is an MIT Media Lab research affiliate, a visiting professor of computer science at Open University, a visiting professor of practice at the University of South Carolina's School of Library and Information Science, and co-founded the UK Open Rights Group. Born in Toronto, Canada, he now lives in Los Angeles. Corey's not only a big fan of the Merrill Collection, it also played an important role in his path toward becoming a professional author, which we'll get into. Hi, Corey. Thanks for joining us. Oh, it's absolutely my pleasure. Anything for the Merrill Collection. All right, uh, so to get things going, um, I'm wondering if you can tell us what was the first speculative book you remember reading. Oh, goodness. The first speculative work, I mean, it was, I'm sure it was Dr. Seuss or something like it, Harold and the Magic Crayon. I mean, you know, uh, I mean, yeah, or, or, you know, the Brothers Grimm or something. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm sure it was, I'm sure it was a, a picture book. Uh, was was the first speculative fiction I ever read. Okay, uh, how about your first Canadian speculative work? Probably Shel Silverstein. I uh, know he's not Canadian. Maurice Sendak was he Canadian? I don't. It would also be a picture book. It would be a picture book by a Canadian. I'm having I'm having the Howie Mandel problem. Howie Mandel has this bit where he describes how when he was a kid, his parents would uh, point at the television and say, "You know, that guy is Jewish." And sometimes they point at the television and say, "You know, that guy is Canadian." And when he got older, he forgot which was which, and he would point at people on the television and go, "That guy is Jewish." Or Canadian, so I can't remember either. Maurice Sendak is Jewish or Canadian or both. I don't know. All right, cool. <laughs> um, I understand you grew up here in Toronto at a time when Judith Merrill was also living here. Did you spend any time in the collection when you were younger? And uh, if so, did you ever meet Judith? Yeah, absolutely. I went to you know a groovy alternative school in North York, and uh, my uh, one of our field trips when I was about nine or ten years old was down to the Spaced Out Library, which is what the Merrill used to be called, back when it was on Spadina, just north of Bloor, and uh, Judy was there, and I think Lorna was probably there too, the old uh, head librarian who retired a couple of years ago, and um, I. Uh, was completely taken with it. I was a giant Conan fan at the time, and there was uh, every Robert Howard edition, every DeCamp edition, comics that I'd never heard of, and so on. Uh, as I recall, the librarians went into the stacks and, and had a, a really good rummage for some rarities for me, uh, and I was completely charmed and taken. And then I found out that Judy would let you bring your manuscripts to her, and, uh, and share them with her and that she would critique them. So I started doing that pretty soon thereafter, probably when I was like 11 or 12, maybe maybe a little older than that. Um, I, uh, I had a Metro Pass, I had a bus pass, and so my, and my parents were quite good about letting me go where I wanted. Uh, you know, one of the things that I was doing at the time was, was taking the streetcar and the subway to Harborfront uh, every weekend to play Dungeons and Dragons there. And so I had a pretty good sense of how to get around downtown, and, and, uh, and so I started taking 
sticking myself down there with my uh, dot matrix printed fanfold manuscripts for my Apple II Plus to get uh, Judy to critique them. And she was very kind about it. That must have been amazing. Yeah. I mean, she was both an accomplished sci-fi writer and someone who was known for discovering new talent. How great to have her as a sort of mentor when you were first starting out. It was it was spectacular. And, you know, one of the things that I talk about when people ask me about about, you know, the path to becoming a science fiction writer is that Toronto was one of the few places Toronto, at least in the 80s, was one of the few places in the world that had something like a formal apprenticeship for science fiction writing. So when I was very young, when I was when I was, you know, six or seven, uh, my mom was going to in fact, probably even younger, five or six. My mom was going to uh, teachers college at night. And my dad would babysit, and we would watch Doctor Who on TVO, and Judy would introduce every episode of Doctor Who, and she would explain how it connected to the tropes in science fiction, the things that they were inventing in the Futurian house in the 50s and 60s, and so on. And so I went from there to going to the Merrill collection. And also, I think probably on the same field trip that we went to the Merrill, we went to Baca Books. And Tanya Huff, who was behind the counter then, and who hadn't yet sold her first short story, you know, I asked her for help picking a book. And she asked me what I like to read in the school library. And she walked me back to the used section and found me a copy of H. Beam Piper's Little Fuzzy that was marked down to a dollar. And that was the first book I ever bought for myself. And Tanya also let me bring her my manuscripts when I was, you know, 14 and 15, as she started to sell stories and then novels. And when Tanya quit her job to write full time in the country with her partner, I got her job. So I went to work at Baca. And by that, by that time, um, uh, Judy was uh, running these Hydra meetings. So Hydra had started in New York. There were these spaghetti dinner potlucks uh, that were um, centered on the Futurian house where everyone involved in science fiction, the writers, the editors, the critics, the agents, would all gather once a month for a big uh, dinner and kind of get, you know, have a couple of beers and get raucous and have a fun time. Judy instituted the same thing in Toronto. It was, it was $2 to help cover the costs, and you would go to a different house every, I think it was six weeks or eight weeks. So there I was as a young teen or an older teen, you know, 18 or 19 maybe, going to these Hydra meetings, having started to sell short stories to the likes of On Spec, and meeting all the writers and editors and critics, um, Judy processed me into a science fiction critiquing group that she had formed out of her students that's still going today called the Cecil Street Irregulars. Uh, I started going when it, um, with Carl Schrader when I was, I think, 16 and he was probably 20. And uh, it's still going today. So I had this writing group that I was part of. And Judy also, through a grant, had set up all these writing workshops at different high schools in Toronto, including at the alternative school I went to, Seed School. And so I was attending a writing workshop twice or three times a week at high school that was set up on the principles developed at the Clarion Workshop, the venerable science fiction writing workshop that, that Judy had actually set up and that was still going a decade later. And when I finally went to Clarion in 92, I instantly knew how it worked because I'd been doing Clarion style workshopping since early high school. And, you know, now I'm on the board of Clarion. I teach it every couple of years. And all of that traces back to this this kind of accidental apprenticeship that Toronto is running for ambitious young science fiction writers in the in the 80s. And, you know, that uh, you mentioned Judy and Doctor Who reminds me of another cool TV connection where the show Prisoners of Gravity on TVO, for listeners who aren't familiar, that was a very popular pop culture series made out of Toronto, all about everything genre. Um, 
the host Rick Green uh, and maybe some other people involved with the show did research there like at least once a month I think he sat down with Lorna the previous head of the collection and uh, would get her to help him basically just yeah do a pile of research on whatever topic he was tackling uh, for the next episode. I didn't even mention prisoners. I was also a consultant on prisoners because I was working at Baca, and they would call me up to ask me what was good and new. And so I was appearing on prisoners. I was volunteering at Ad Astra as a gopher and meeting new pros that way and like being their gopher and taking them up to the green room and bringing them drinks while they were doing signings. So all of that stuff was swirling around. So do you still use the collection for research purposes, writing, even just hanging out? Well, you know, I, I get these snapshot visions of it now because I've been an expatriate for a couple of decades, so I only see it when I come back through town. Uh, but, you know, as a Canadian science fiction writer, it's my first port of call when I have research questions. It's also where I try to do events when I come through town. And it's also a place that I send other people to when they're trying to learn the answer to important science fictional questions. You know, there was... Um, a couple of years ago, uh, Tim O'Reilly, the, the publisher of the tech books, he, who runs uh, the O'Reilly Conference, a great sort of giant in technology, the guy who coined the term uh, Web 2.0, wanted to use Bill Gibson's quote, the future is here, it's just not evenly distributed, as an epigraph in something he was publishing. And, you know, the Merrill did the legwork to dig all that stuff up. And whenever I come to town, I try to come in and just tour the stacks because they're really impressive. I mean, the, the breadth, depth, and thoughtfulness and the care in that collection is astounding. And I add to it in my own small way. They uh, also archive my papers. So, you know, you're a Canadian expat. I mean, you've been living in Los Angeles for many years, and I think you were in England before. Um, that must have had some impact on your writing. Well, I think that being a Canadian in particular makes you well-suited to write about America in the same sense that the kid who's on the outs with the popular kids knows an awful lot about their social arrangements from being effectively invisible to them and sitting on the periphery and watching their watching them with kind of an anthropologist detachment. You know, I think there's a reason that there's so many Canadian comedians working in in the US, right? That people that that understanding where the soft comedic underbelly of American culture is is something that Canadians uh, have historically been quite good at because of because of that um, element, um, and you know I, I I am distrustful of authoritarianism, but not necessarily of government, and so uh, the the Canadian tradition. Um, has relied an, uh, extensively on norms to stave off authoritarianism, whereas the U.S. tradition has historically been much more uh, legalistic. So, you know, you have the First Amendment in the U.S. In Canada, you have the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, but it's balanced by the notwithstanding clause. And uh, uh, the um, expectation when, when Jean Chrétien talked Trudeau into introducing the notwithstanding clause was that norms would hold back provincial leaders from creating unconstitutional law and that you didn't need black letter law, right? That you could, re it was a very kind of British approach, right? This idea that, you know, no, no gentleman would ever uh, pass a law that was unconstitutional if he had to admit in the same breath that it was unconstitutional. And then along comes Doug Ford, right? And literally his first act, his first legislative act, was to invoke the notwithstanding clause uh, in order to punish a political rival, right? And so I... I Although there are elements of American culture that are super toxic, and especially its political culture, obviously, as we're living through it, the um, 
the one thing that I've I've become increasingly convinced of in the times I've lived in the states, and you know, I, this is my fifth time living in California. Uh, in between, I've lived in Central America and in the UK. Uh, and and the one thing I've become increasingly convinced of is that norms themselves, while absolutely vital, not just important but indispensable, must be accompanied by strong legalistic traditions. Otherwise, it's very easy for them both to slip away. Uh, and that strong norms and strong laws beat weak laws and strong norms. Yeah, no, I agree with you about uh, the laws and norms there. Oh, boy. Um, I'm curious, you know, there's a long tradition of TV and film made in Canada that is uh, made to, you know, look like an ambiguous anywhere or to try and make it look like it's somewhere in America to make it better able to sell. In a similar vein, I'm wondering, you know, because you've never been shy about setting your work in Canada, did writing from a Canadian perspective or setting stories in Canada limit your ability to get read? Oh, no, not at all. Um, you know, and, and it, it might be a, a function of when I started selling fiction. So I sold my first story, I think, in 1988 to On Spec when I was 17. And, um, you know, at the time, it was kind of the, the like the boom years of cyberpunk. And one of the things about cyberpunk was that it reveled in settings that weren't the U.S. You know, you had Lou Shiner writing extensively about Central and South America. You had, you know, Japan taking center stage in Bill Gibson's work. Uh, you know, you had uh, Bruce Sterling being so staunchly global and, uh, you know, setting things uh, in, on uh, obscure Pacific atolls and so on. Um, and so Canada for me was was a no-brainer to set stuff in Canada. It also helped that around that time, David Hartwell from Tor and uh, Glenn Grant from Montreal ha were editing a, a pair of science fiction anthologies that um, drew Canadian science fiction, but for an American audience, uh, Northern Suns and Northern Stars. I think I had stories in both of them, maybe just one, but, but you know, it, it, there was this kind of uh, resurgence of Canadian interest, and Hartwell was publishing a ton of Canadian writers that he was picking up. And my editor at Tor, uh, uh, Patrick Nielsen Hayden, had lived in Toronto, and so he was very connected to the city, and, and he'd also lived in Winnipeg, and, and was never once said, well, why on earth would would you set this in Toronto? Uh, and it's never come up since. Um, you know, if anything, it gives you the advantage of, of having settings that are less familiar and uh, more amenable to, to change. And certainly, like, as a reader, I always reveled in fiction that was set in Toronto. It just gave me this, back to Howie Mandel, right, this crazy excitement, you know, that, that this thing that, uh, you know, that, that you thought was this obscure provincial fact about yourself turns out to be central to someone's stories. You know, I would automatically buy fiction that was set in Toronto. I remember uh, Jim Gardner's story, I think it was Mufflin Explains Teleology to the World at Large in, in Asimov's in the 80s. And uh, I didn't know Jim at the time, but I cracked the book. And like the first thing I saw was that, it, that the action was set in Gananoque, just outside of Kingston. And I was like, oh my God, this is so exciting. How the hell does this um, American magazine have a story set 
in this small town in, in eastern Ontario. And, you know, I went out and bought Terry Green's Tolerable Levels of Violence, which was, you know, frankly, not a great book, but I totally devoured it because it was set in Toronto and in Ottawa. And, you know, same with with Charles DeLint's books and so on, although those all, were all great books, uh, going out and buying those books because they were so, it was so exciting to see these familiar settings in, in the work I read. Okay. Would you say is there a difference between Canadian and American sci-fi? Is there a uniqueness to Canadian sci-fi that distinguishes it from what Americans write? You know, I think you would have to ask a scholar of, uh, you know, a relative scholar, like ask Alan Weiss or something, because I, I don't know. I mean, it's, you know, like, certainly like uh, Amal uh, Motar, uh writes differently to other writers but I don't know how much of that is Canadianness and how much of that is her unique and very or sorry I think their unique and very distinctive voice it's hard to say I I honestly don't know I mean not to not to mention that American science fiction is incredibly diverse and weird and encompasses a lot of um very different modes of storytelling. I mean, you know, there's obviously a mainstream tradition in American SF of like far right militaristic American exceptionalism and also, you know, dissidents and kind of Chip Delaney-ish stuff. But I don't know. I, I'm, I'm skeptical that I could tell you. I think 10 years ago, I would have been very confident in telling you that Canadian SF was different from American SF. And either I am wiser or the field has gotten weirder but I don't think that it, I could articulate a crisp distinction anymore. Okay, fair enough. You're primarily known for your speculative writing, but you write in other genres as well. Now, I might be wrong here, but did I read somewhere that you wrote a, a James Bond story at some point for the License Expired anthology that uh, came out a few years back? Uh, I didn't participate in that anthology, but I know it existed and I helped promote it. Yeah, no, that was the Bond anthology. That's right. Yeah. So Canada has a, well, had a shorter term of copyright than um, uh, the U.S. Uh, in Canada, it's life plus 50 years, as is dictated by the Berne Convention, which has been incorporated into various international trade agreements like um, the the TRIPS, which is the part of the WTO agreement that deals with copyright, and the WIPO Copyright Treaty and the WIPO Performers and Photograms Treaties. So that life that that um, life in 50 is is Canada, Australia, UK, a bunch of other countries. The U.S. adopted life in 70. And that's had lots of negative effects. Uh, the big one, of course, being that um, it's produced a huge number of orphan works, works that have no known rights holder, but that might have a rights holder, and no one can figure out whether or not they can reissue those works. And there's a strong likelihood that every known copy of those works will disappear before they're unambiguously clear to be reprinted and, and preserved. And so those works are like disappearing from our discourse and also may actually disappear from the face of the earth as a consequence of copyright. And it's hard to square any purpose of copyright, whether that's to um, uh, uh, ensure that creators are remunerated or, or remunerated rather, or, or whether it's to, uh, you know, promote culture or diversity or whatever. There's not really any articulatable copyright purpose that is served by having um, these very, very long terms of copyright. Uh, unfortunately, the uh, Justin Trudeau signed away Canadian copyright in the second NAFTA negotiations with Trump and has brought us up to life in 70. So one of the things that, that having life in 50 meant was that James Bond went into the public domain in Canada, and so there was an anthology of auth unauthorized legal James Bond stories. Um, now those stories presumptively are going to become illegal. 
because they've been, they're about to become copyright infringements because the, the Fleming estate is going to be able to uh, assert control over them. Oh, geez. Well, all the more reason then, I suppose, to have something like the Merrill Collection and other archives to hopefully preserve copies of works by those uh, orphaned authors that they may survive long enough to one day be reprinted. I'm curious, you know, in terms of your own reading, are there any other Canadian speculative writers we should be keeping an eye on? Well, I mentioned Amal Al-Motar. They're very, very good. Um, what other Canadian NSF have I enjoyed lately? I mean, Dave Nichol continues to write amazing stuff, as do Madeline Ashby and 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 Peter Watson and uh, Carl Schrader. You know, the the kind of the usual suspects are still producing really amazing work. I think Carl's last book, in particular, uh, Changing Worlds, uh, or Playing Worlds, rather. No, what's it called? Uh, Carl Schrader's last book was called Stealing Worlds. Stealing Worlds uh, was his best work yet. You know, he's he's really just nailing it. Um, and uh, yeah, in terms of new voices, I'm very impressed with Amal. I'm very impressed with Leah Bobet. Uh, she's doing fantastic work. It's it's a thriving scene. Okay, and how about yourself? What new and exciting projects does Cory Doctorow have coming up? Well, my, my next book, uh, well, the next thing that's coming out is a paperback of Radicalized, which will be sometime this spring. And then in the summer, uh, in July, my first picture book, which is called Posey the Monster Slayer. It's about a little girl who's obsessed with monsters and who, while her parents are sleeping, tears apart her super girly toys and repurposes them as uh, field expedient monster killing weapons and hunts monsters by night. Um, and then the third uh, little brother book is coming out. Uh, oh, no, sorry. Next summer, I'll also have the omnibus edition of Little Brother and Homeland. And then the third Little Brother book, which is called uh, Attack Surface, is out in the fall of 2020. And I've just started work on a Green New Deal novel, a novel set after a successful Green New Deal about truth and reconciliation with the white nationalists, far-right figures, climate deniers, and others who uh, oppose the Green New Deal, but who are still around even after it's been a success, and what you do with people who are on the wrong side of a just revolution. And it's called The Lost Cause. Oh, cool. I, I want to read that Green New Deal story for sure. All right. Well, I mean, this has been really great, really informative. And, and thank you so much for doing this. It's been a real pleasure talking with you. Well, the pleasure is mutual. This has been Unknown Worlds of the Merrill Collection, hosted by myself, Oliver Brackenbury, and produced by Chris Dickey as part of the Friends of Merrill. The Friends are an all-volunteer group dedicated to promoting the Merrill Collection through events and projects like this show. Learn more at friendsofmerrill.org. You can also check out the show notes for our social media links and to further explore today's topic. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time in another world.